Welcome to Get Real, Talking Mental Health and Disability. I'm Robin Hayden. We're continuing our conversations about the mental health system, both in Victoria and other states, and the organisations that form part of this essential health service. But no one could have anticipated the COVID-19 global pandemic that started in early 2020 and is still continuing, and the pressures this would bring to the sector. So we know that the mental health system in Victoria and in the other states and territories of Australia were already struggling to cope with demand and that the COVID-19 pandemic has significantly blown out those pressures. Mental health support organisations are seeing steep increases in the requests for support, in particular crisis helplines and support referral services. One example is Lifeline, which recorded 3,505 calls in one day in August 2021, the highest daily number in the organisation's more than 50-year history. Pre-pandemic, Lifeline would average around 2,400 calls a day. It's a similar experience for other organisations, so there's a lot going on out there. Um, and joining me today to to talk to our guests about this is my co-host, um, Carenza Louis-Smith, who is CEO of Irma365. Thanks for joining me today, Carenza. Great to be back, Robin. It's awesome to have you. And today, as I've said, we've got two very special guests to talk to us about this topic of the pressures on mental health support services, in particular crisis lines and referral services during COVID-19. So first of all, welcome to Joe Ball, CEO of Switchfold Victoria, which is a community-based not-for-profit organisation providing a peer-driven service for LGBTIQA plus communities and their allies. Friends, support workers and families, including Rainbow Door, a free specialist LGBTIQA plus helpline providing information and support. Switchboard is also the Victorian partner of the national crisis service QLife. Joe is a passionate CEO and community leader for LGBTIQA plus community. So welcome, Joe. Thanks, Robin. Happy to be here. Great to have you. And joining us from Canberra is Nick Tebby. Nick is National Executive Officer of Relationships Australia, a not-for-profit national provider of relationship support services for individuals, families and communities. Nick is a lawyer who was previously CEO of the Settlement Council of Australia, which represents settlement agencies providing direct services to people of refugee and migrant backgrounds. So welcome to you too, Nick Thank you so much, Robin. Lovely to be here. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. So first question um, to both of you, just so that we can get a sense of your organisations and what you do. Um, Joe, we'll start with you. Can you tell us a bit about the work of Switchboard? Yeah, that's a pleasure. So it's important to understand that Switchboard is an LGBTIQA plus community controlled organisation, which means that everybody who um, work that our organisation sits on our board and volunteers identifies as part of our um, organisation, uh, as part of our LGBTIQA plus community. So um, it's sort of uh, our health in our hands, living living that ideology through the community control. So we're 30 years old this year. We began in 1991 out of a, a previous pandemic, which was the AIDS pandemic. Uh, so which is something I've thought about every day since the COVID-19, because of course the AIDS pandemic um, did not have the same kind of public health response as we have seen this time, and certainly no mental health response. So today we run two helplines, as you mentioned, the national, we're the Victorian provider of the LGBTIQA plus national service QLife, and we run the recently funded through the Mental Health Royal Commission helpline Rainbow Door. We have a dedicated anti-racism project 
which is for queer, trans, intersex people of colour. And it's about addressing racism within our community and ensuring that there's inclusion of people of colour in our services. We also have an older people's visiting program where outside of COVID, we go and visit people in their older people in their homes or in their aged care facilities. Of course, during COVID, that was not a possibility and we had to turn those visits to being online, letter writing, phone calls, etc. So that's who we are. Um, and yeah, one of my favourite topics is to talk about what we do. That's great to hear about all of that. Thank you so much, Jo. I'm sure we'll explore that a lot more um, as we chat today. So Nick, can you share with us a little bit about Relationships Australia and the services that, that it provides? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so Relationships Australia is a national federation of not-for-profit organisations. There's one in each state or territory and, and we've been operating for over 70 years now. Um, originally, uh, back in the post-World War II era as a marriage guidance council, um, supporting relationships, particularly for returned soldiers who were adjusting to um, return life, uh, civilian life in Australia after the war. But um, over that 70-year period, and, and certainly in more recent years, there's been quite an evolution in the, the way that Relationships Australia frames its services and the types of services it provides around the country. So really we're about uh, promoting respectful relationships, uh, supporting people in their relationships, um, and providing a range of individual, family, and community services that are really designed to, um, I suppose, strike at the heart of what it, what it does mean to be in respectful relationships, both with yourself and, and with those around you. So that looks like a, it looks slightly different in each state and territory. Um, in, in some states, um, there's a, a focus, or in all states, there's still a focus on family relationships, uh, the well-being and, and development needs of children, um, what happens when relationships break down, um, but then a whole range of other mental health uh, drug and alcohol addiction, gambling services and things like that. The most important um, thing for Relationships Australia is that we operate um, with no religious affiliation. We're a service for all members of the community, uh, irrespective of, of their cultural or, or religious background or their social or uh, economic circumstances. Um, and I think with that, you know, the, the really strong underpinning of everything we do is that human rights um, require that everyone have the right to live safely, to live with dignity and to enjoy the relationships that they have. So that's really what underpins our services. Thanks, Robin, for inviting me to kind of co-host today. And um, it's really interesting, Nick and Joe, hearing about um, both of your organisations obviously doing some incredible work in the community. And I'm really curious to understand a bit more about the impact that COVID has had. And certainly, Robin, in your intro, you talked a lot about Lifeline's experience, in particular around the crisis and support lines, um, with record numbers of inquiries for help in this last 12 months. No surprises. And um, Joe, has this been the same experience for you over at Rainbow Door and Q Life um, with the phone chat and the web chat services? And, you know, and are there new or emerging kind of areas of, I suppose, support that people are asking for? Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, we run two seven-day-a-week helplines and we certainly have seen the same like increase in phone calls um, by comparison as Lifeline has, so that sort of skyrocketing in demand. And I think that, you know, helplines have been at the forefront of the essential services responses to mental health. And one of the things we've noticed is that people who have never called helplines before have called helplines for the first time during COVID-19. And 
you know, I think that's for many reasons of the sheer pressure of the pandemic, um, the real health fears, uh, lockdowns, etc. But I think it's also that people have lost a lot of their mental health supports that are clinical and non-clinical. So people have struggled to get in, get appointments at GPs. The people have struggled. I mean, particularly from a Victorian perspective, we've seen long wait lists at counselling. Uh, Counsellors close their books, um, and people just having to be put on kind of sort of endless wait lines um, and sort of unknown of when they will, you know, when books will reopen and when people will be able to reaccess services. But also there's that's the clinical responses, also the non-clinical responses. So people doing things that their healthcare plans, their own mental health plans that they've created, curated over the years have actually fallen apart. So things like being able to go and exercise. In Victoria, we had the one year of the one hour exercise limit last year during stage four. So people couldn't do some of those uh, natural things to themselves about looking after themselves. So going for a walk, seeing friends, uh, connecting with nature, going for a swim. You know, we saw local pools closed down, gyms closed down. So we sort of saw the collapse of those kind of mental health, the soft mental health support and the um, delays in the clinical responses. So there's no, of course, that means that where do people, where have been people been left to turn? They've been left to turn to helplines. And of course, we always welcome people to call and we're very happy to always speak to people. Um, but it's definitely been an extremely challenging time. And one of the things um, that I think it's really worth thinking about is one of the biggest alleviations of um, the pressure that was on people during COVID-19 uh, was actually some of the supports that were provided. And one of them was JobKeeper. Um, the fact that they increased um, the uh, the unemployment wage, we saw people, actually that was an alleviation of um, mental health distress and another way it was the provision of childcare. And if there's two things that could come out of COVID-19 that would really see an increased and ongoing, I think, um, improvement in people's mental health, it would be for them to raise the minimum, um, you know, to, to, to double what they did during COVID-19, um, the unemployment benefits and to provide free childcare. Because that was something we first-hand experienced on our services. And Nick, um, I'm interested in your um, experiences, I guess, at Relationships Australia too. Have they been similar to what Joe's described? Have they been different? I mean, you've certainly had significant increases in demand, but I'm curious as to what the emerging issues as well might have been over this last 12 to 18 months that you've seen. Mm, thanks, Corinza. Yeah, and I, I do agree with everything that Joe has said. I think, you know, this... This period has put an unprecedented level of strain on, on us individually and on our relationships. And, and certainly a lot of our research um, throughout the, the time of the pandemic has shown um, without a great deal of surprise um, that you know, people have felt more lonely, more isolated. Um, mental health has taken a real um, hit as a result of, of everything that's going on. And you know, one of the things that is commonly reported to us through that is it's, it's about that lack of control, that inability to predict the future. And, and so the great levels of uncertainty about what, what comes next. And, you know, even as we talk about um, certain um, relaxation in, in restrictions and things that's happening as we speak, um, you, just, you just don't know and people don't know and can't predict whether that's a long-term relaxation or whether it's all going to, um, to change again soon. And, and so I think that has a, a unique way of adding pressure to what are already busy lives. And, and you know, certainly in clients presenting to us, we've seen 
common issues around economic uncertainty, real concern for children and, and you know, juggling the, the work from home and the schooling from home and keeping their children occupied, worrying about their children's mental health as well as their own. Um, we did a, a survey early in the in the crisis, um, which said that 42% of couple relationships were feeling additional strain um, as a result of, of the, the early lockdown in COVID. And I think since then, we've seen sort of, I guess, a more nuanced understanding of what that looks like. And certainly there have been relationships that have suffered um, as a result. But then there are others where we've actually seen people who've been able to draw on support from each other um, and really use their relationships, who've actually formed stronger bonds as a result of it and, and come through it together. So there's a bit of a silver lining in there. Um, but nevertheless, you know, our wait list, our demand for, for services is, is continuing to increase. Um, in some of our states, you know, the, the wait list for counselling services and other services has just multiplied by, you know, hundreds of percent. Um, and I don't see that changing anytime soon because for a lot of people, there are a lot of issues still to be unpacked. Even as, as we come out of lockdown, there's the long-term effect of COVID, which is what are all the things we missed out on over the last 18 months? What are the extra pressures? Where are the cracks that have formed? Um, and so how that plays out is something we, we need to be waiting for and we need to be ready to respond to and support people with. And at the same time as, you know, all of that is in front of us, I think what's been behind us, I guess, in the rear vision mirror now looking back at the last 18 months is this unprecedented shift to having to do everything online. I remember when we left the office, um, we got a little bit of training on, here's a useful thing called Microsoft Teams. You might need to use it a bit, you know, over the next little while when we thought we'd be out of the office for two or three weeks. And now, you know, this is the way that we are connecting. So really interested um, just to get your experiences on whether you've noticed a shift in how people are using using helpline or referral services throughout the pandemic? You know, are you seeing an increase in web chat, SMS services, how people are wanting to engage with you? And, and how have you accommodated that? You know, how have your organisations had to, had to shift? So, um, Nick, to, perhaps we might start with you and then, um, Joe, you might want to take that one as well. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Robin. Look, I, it, it was something we joked about um, probably 18 months ago um, that, you know, it, it took one worldwide event to, to bring forward everyone's digital transformation um, strategies in, in the most remarkable ways. And, and certainly within our own organisations, we, we saw this, you know, as you mentioned, the shift to, to telehealth and um, video conferencing and everything was it was phenomenal. It was things that the IT managers in each organisation could only have dreamed about before that the, the way that everyone took that up. But you know that that's the lighter side of it. I think we have to acknowledge that that's taken a toll um, in different ways. It, it's harder for practitioners um, who you know are working from home are also seeing clients in their own home via via technology. But there's a, less of a separation there between the services they're delivering in their own lives. And, and I think that's something we've, we've been quite conscious of. Um, there's certainly a risk that for some people due to digital exclusion and, and other um, barriers, it's harder to access services when they're only, only provided online. Um, so we need to be aware of those sorts of um, issues as well, while at the same time, I think, appreciating that digital health and access to, to services via digital means has actually meant services are more accessible than, than perhaps they were previously. 
um, it's easier for people to to get to an appointment if the appointment is in their lounge room rather than driving into the city, finding parking, you know, finding time and, and all those sorts of things that go with it. So there have been some real benefits to opening up um, greater technology uh, around service delivery. So I think it's here to stay. Um, we've certainly seen a shift, you know, for, in, for a large period of time, certainly in states like Victoria, all of our services where they could be were provided online. Um, and I think that will continue for some time, but there will be a balance and there will need to be a balance of services for people who um, need that face-to-face interaction, need to be physically present, and others who prefer prefer the online option. Mm. Joe, what are your thoughts? thoughts and what's your experience been around the technology side of things and how people are interacting with you now? Yeah, I think it's been really interesting. Like we, we, yeah, I agree with the, we did a huge technology jump. Um, so prior to COVID, you know, we had a, um, you know, our name is called Switchboard and that comes from a literal switchboard that was implanted in the world, a PABX box, which meant that all our phone calls needed to take place in a physical office. And with the, you know, the introduction of those stages, those stage three, stage four lockdowns that happened in Victoria, even though we were an essential service, we did reach a point where we needed to send staff home. And we had to go on to um, VoIP, which was a system which is online, which means that people could take the phone calls at home and over the internet. And that was a huge jump. That was a massive thing and a huge um like technological leap we needed to make, like the, the fact that we, we went through that, people probably remember, but we had to suddenly buy all these laptops because staff didn't have a need to, who worked on the phone lines, didn't need to have a laptop at home because all their work took place in a workplace. And we suddenly had to buy headphones and laptops and all these things and they suddenly had to go home. And then there was also a global shortage of technology. We managed to do it all and it was a huge thing. Um, and it's a leap that, we probably needed to make as an organisation because there's many needs at different times um, where staff need to work from home and it's made us a more accessible workplace, particularly for people who have childcare needs, um, who live with a disability and, and potentially we can have a workforce now where some of those people live in regional Victoria rather than having to live in Metro Melbourne. So I think it's made us better in that way. Um, and however, for our clients, it's been a really mixed, story and Nick talks to that and he talked to like digital exclusion which I think is really important to talk about I mean we Rainbow Door is a mental health and a family violence service and there is a huge digital divide if you can't sit on a phone line and talk to somebody because you're in a lockdown Um, family violence is a classic you know it actually created an environment where people could be more controlled Um, and so that's why we saw we, we believe we saw a huge increase in web chat um, of people having that and, and we set up an interface deliberately uh, with this reflection on that our web chat doesn't take place through having to open a browser on your computer. You actually can just text someone and have that SMS interaction with them, which was very, very important. When you're talking about young people who might be in families of origin where they can't talk to someone on the phone, um, they don't want to have a browser open and the same goes for people experiencing family violence. So. Um, but that is that digital exclusion. We have to keep that in mind and realise that, you know, not everyone's very, um, you know, not everyone's home is a safe place for many different and complicated reasons. Um, and we can't, um, and so, you know, once we celebrate like that things can happen in people's homes, we need to recognise that. And another example is, you know, the digital exclusion of older people. So we support 91 people 
who live in their home or an aged care facility and there are older people with disabilities that's how that's the access to our service one third of those people only in that service one third of 91 have email access none of those other people have access to an email so that's not that's not even talking about a tablet that's talking about an email address so out of those one third some of those people don't have a smartphone they don't have a computer at home and they access that email from a library or something so if you think about that so when COVID happened when we talked about virtual visiting we actually returned to letter writing for many of those older people um, and that's what we had to do and phone calls um, but then remembering again with the digital divide we assume that everyone's got a phone a lot of people who live in aged care facilities don't necessarily have a phone in their own room and if they don't have a mobile phone they have to leave their room and you know have someone get them up and move and help them get out of their bed to go to a phone call and make that phone call. So that's that, that's that digital divide in a practical way. Mm. Gee, there's, there is so much to think about when you go from the traditional models of delivering services to here's a pandemic and you're going to have to do things that completely differently. Um, so that's fascinating. Thank you both. And I know you know there are there are also systemic issues that we're looking at here. And, and both of your organisations made submissions to the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. So there are kind of underlying conditions here that we're trying to address. So Joe, I think Switchboard made a joint submission with Thorn Harbour Health and Rainbow. Health Victoria and Nick I think the submission might have been before your time at Relationships Australia but you know when your organisations were making those submissions what were the most pressing needs for the people and the communities that you supported and have those changed you know especially now with the pandemic putting more pressure on mental health and, and, and services so Nick if we can start with you what does that look like for Relationships Australia? Sure. Thanks, Robin. And I think, yeah, what's interesting is probably not enough has changed, um, in, at least in a positive way. And perhaps COVID, if nothing else, has made made some of the issues or, or the areas of needing attention more acute than they were before. And I think you know, one of one of the major focuses that we we have at Relationships Australia is to try and move the discussion about mental health away from purely being a medicalized response and a medicalized issue and actually talk about social um, construct and and i mean it's, it's implied in our name but the importance of relationships as a as a protective factor um and and also um i suppose the flip side of that the impact of mental health issues on relationships and so i think um, one of our major priorities is that we continue to see a rollout of services that are around um, intervention, uh, rather than intervention, around prevention, around helping people build up the capacity and the support networks um, so that we don't see a growth in number of, of clients accessing um, um, medicalized mental health supports down the track. And I think, I think it's important to understand that um, those sorts of social supports and other supports that are available, and, and Joe spoke about these before, um, even just opportunities for self-care, um, going to the gym, getting out, and really appreciating the value that all of that has. In, in protecting and enhancing someone's mental health. And I think, so coming back to COVID, yes, it has certainly had an impact. I mean, we've seen relationships um, under great pressure, not just as I discussed before, but where people have been cut off from each other because of social isolation, because of quarantining, because of border closures. Um, and the real struggle that people have had to maintain their, their support networks around them. Um, and... Um, 
I suppose the extra effort that people have had to go to to try and 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 have those support networks available to them. So the more that we continue to to talk about and ultimately invest in um, supporting and building capacity for for that level of, of um, preventative mental health work, I think the better. Um, and that's certainly something that you know we've seen the COVID has put a spotlight on that just how important those relationships can be. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Joe, what does that look like for you? You know, the kind of the the before and the during, if you like, because we certainly know we're near the after um, in terms of, you know, where you started with the Royal Commission and where you've seen those needs shift and change. What does that look like um, for for your organisation? One of the things we advocated really strongly with as part of the sector um, at Switchboard to the Mental Health Royal Commission is that people need real choice in the sector. And in order for people to have choice, which speaks to what Nick is talking about there about like the range of services and not just people um, at the crisis end, but at all stages. But um, one of the things we really advocated for is, is that you need to have a mix of you know, specialist organisations that are LGBTIQA plus competent and are places where our community can go that aren't necessarily LGBTI organisations, but they're competent and they're inclusive. Um, And then you need to have a sector that's properly funded that is LGBTIQA plus organisations. You know, there was a piece of research in 2017 called Understanding LGBTI Lives in Crisis. And that was research that was done with Lifeline and La Trobe University, and overwhelmingly people said that that's what they said, they wanted choice, um, and they wanted to be able to go to peer-based organisations, um, and that people in our community had ongoing current experiences of where services didn't understand their needs, um, to at one end and at the other end, just outright rejection and um, discrimination in service access. So I think that, you know, you really need to build up that choice and you need to, um, you, you can't, uh, you know, in some of the tender rounds and some things we advocated for is that you need to actually have discrete money that is for community controlled organisations. This is a lesson that was learned from the Aboriginal sector, the need to actually have dedicated money. If you actually make small organisations like us compete against larger organisations, so if you look at like us versus um the Beyond Blue helpline or us versus lifeline, you know, we are not funded to deal with that capacity of numbers and also we're not funded at that rate of money. So we can't tender. Um, we are specialist services to provide a particular, you know, um, specialist knowledge and responses in our community. So you need to have that sort of hived off money. And we did see that with the uh, funding of the Rainbow Door, where it was named as a recommendation. Um, our service was named in the Mental Health Royal Commission, one of the few named organisations. Um, so that was really important. The other thing we argued for, which was the Rainbow Door, which was to have a, you need to have connector navigator service into the mental health service. Our community needs a safe landing place where they can have a conversation with people about what are the best services for their needs. So we have people who ring us every day from all across Victoria and increasingly other states. Um, you know, we're a Victorian service, but, you know, people don't stop at the border. And they ring us up and they say, you know, like, for example, I live in Mildura. I'm an Aboriginal sister girl. What's a good service I can go to to have a conversation about gender affirmation care? You know, and, and, and we will have a conversation with that person about what the Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, what the telehealth options are, what the generalist, you know, GP options are in town, 
And, and that's what people need. They need to connect and navigate a model to be able to understand the sector and to be given the choices, to have a conversation with a peer and to be given the choices about what's available. Because not all of our community need or want to go into LGBTI specialist services, but they certainly want to know um, what are the better services to go into that are mainstream. Yeah, so there's some real themes there, I think, from both of you around sort of that prevention but also that specialist navigation and helping people to navigate the services. Thank you. And I think, Robin, what was really interesting about that process is I think um, every organisation was writing their submission to the Royal Commission before COVID. And then obviously COVID's really changed, I think, and impacted how we deliver services today, which I guess you've been talking about. But I think one of the things that it has done is it's shone the spotlight on frontline workers, whether they're in health services, mental health services, whether they're in the hospitals or the community. I think there's a greater understanding and awareness of what this workforce does, um, which I think is a good thing. Um, but I'm interested to understand what are some of the things that your organisations are putting in place to support your workforce right now, I guess, during the pandemic to support people who are struggling? I, mean, the, I guess the mental health of our workforces were always important, but even more so now, I guess, with that spotlight that shone them, on them, but also the additional presses, uh, stresses and pressures of delivering frontline essential services during a pandemic. So um, I don't know, um, Nick, if you'd like to sort of share with me perhaps what, what, what you guys are doing at Relationships Australia. Sure, yeah. And I, I touched on this before because I think, you know, some of our workers have expressed to us throughout the, the added pressure of trying to deliver services, um, you know, that can be quite serious and and, and tragic at times and, and, and traumatic and, and doing that in, in their home. Um, so, so working with with our staff and and with our teams to to protect their mental health and well-being has been a priority throughout the whole um, period. Um, we, you know, across the the different organisations that make up Relationships Australia, it looks slightly different, but you know, increased supervision um, and regular check-ins. I mean, with with my own team, every day we get together um, over Teams. Um, as you mentioned before, that's the new the new water cooler. Um, and just chat, you know, for even if it's only 15 minutes, um, just to check in with everyone and make sure, you know, everyone's doing okay. And then and then beyond that um, casual chat, it's, it's to talk through issues, you know, more regularly, stay in contact. Don't don't think that you're an island. Um, I think it's been sort of the regular messaging. Um, some of our states have, have in, implemented, um, you know, a, a, a range of mental well-being activities, team activities that are able to be done virtually, um, but that have really shone the spotlight on on self-care, and um, that includes, uh, you know, team get-togethers, uh, rostered days off. Um, other other opportunities for for a bit of um, self care, and I think uh, I think probably the most important thing from the management level has just been to recognise that this is a difficult time, um, and that people can't work um, in the same ways as they would if they were all in an office where they could just quickly bounce ideas off each other and, and look to each other for support. So there has to be that extra effort to create those safe spaces where it's okay to talk about what's what's troubling you. Um, it, it's not a waste of time to pick up the phone and talk to your manager about these issues, even if they seem trivial to you. And really just to have that awareness there that, that it's, that is the conversation that's needed right now. And, and I think that, you know, for the most part, um, that's been, been quite successful. 
And Joe, have your experiences been similar to Nick's or different? What is it that you're doing, I guess, that's there to support your workforce's mental health at the moment? One thing, yeah, I, look, we've definitely done the same thing of increasing supervision, which is an interesting thing to report back to government, to be honest, because it's sort of like often that funders don't really want you to spend more and more money on supervision. Um, and I think, But I think it's about having that open conversation about how do you maintain a workforce and like none of us particularly like nobody wants to rip through their staff you know like see this churn of people that go through the organizations because we're trying to address mental health not cause it right and that's so but I think it's that having that open conversation with, with, with you know doing that advocacy to government about how do you maintain a workforce and how do you look after community um, because also people are part of our LGBTIQA plus community so, you know, we've got that extra that extra emphasis, I guess, on looking after people. Um, but it is, it, I think it's, a, it's an education piece to funders all the time about why you spend money this way and why you don't just spend more money, more and more and more money on putting more and more people on um, and how that's not always a solution. And I think, um, you know, one of the things we, we, we think about is project work that takes people um, off, off frontline services. Um, there is always project work that needs to be done, but actually scheduling people who are, you know, people who sit on the phones, uh, they're on shifts, and that can be a very hard grind that people do. You know, like it is in some ways many, like a call, it is a call centre, it's a call centre response. So about scheduling people to have breaks, scheduling people to have actual project work around issues that they're really passionate about, and that's made a huge difference. I think... Um, what I staff always love it when I go in and listen to will sit in on a phone shift like I'd say to any kind of CEOs who are listening to this who might run like a phone service it's difficult for other clinical services but one of the things I know about my phone workers is that they love it if they feel like I have an understanding of the work that they do and I love to understand that too and it's not an indulgence like I actually schedule time into my calendar to go in and sit through a shift with my staff because I think it's very important that they feel like you actually understand how intense the work is and it's not theoretical. You actually have to – and every single time I do that, I do actually learn things about them as staff um, and learn things. And I always walk away thinking about what heroes they are and, you know, that's a great relationship. Um, and I think the other thing is, is what my staff really like to see is that I've got my job under control, which is advocacy to government around um, external discrimination that's bearing down on our community. My staff want to know that I'm actually trying to reduce some of the, the social determinants of poor mental health in our community. They want to see that I'm speaking out about LGBTIC suicide. They want to see me speaking out against the religious discrimination bill, against, you know, Mark Latham's uh, you know, discrimination bill in New South Wales. My staff want to see that because that's my job. And um, I think that always raises a bit of spirit that they feel like, well, we're doing our job, um, picking up the pieces of poor government policy and, um, you know, uh, unsupportive uh, society and you're doing your bit to try and change it. So I think, you know, that's, that's sort of the ecosystem that I like to build at Switchboard. 
it'd be nice, I think, if in the future we all had a few less pieces that we had to pick up. Um, and the pandemic was that sort of unexpected one that none of us were expecting to have to pick up. But you're right, Joe, around, you know, the, the sort of the systemic advocacy around what causes, what are the causes or the impacts on mental health, particularly in terms of the people that you support. And, you know, also thinking about the high levels of demand that we're getting at the moment, really interested in your thoughts about, you know, whether you believe that that is a sign that people are now starting to reach out more for support because there is, you know, such a spotlight on mental health awareness um, and relationships during the pandemic. Um, is there less stigma about seeking help now? What sort of shifts are you seeing in that space? Joe, I might go to you first. I think that, look, it's a really, you know, we're right in the middle of it. And I think that I'm conscious of not, I guess, making these comments that where we haven't really seen the research come through. Mm. Um, I, I think that we are undoubtedly in a mental, well, we all agree we're in a mental health crisis. That's what um, COVID has caused. And I think that it's not so much that, I, I think that people only call helplines when they really, really need to. And far too many people call don't call them when they really, really need to. So I don't really feel like, I think the job is always on us to encourage more, you know, as people who work in mental health, for people to reach out. It's always our job to help people to reach out and make them feel like our services are approachable and and they're accessible and all those things. I feel like it's not necessarily that more people feel like um, they can reach out. I think it's that more people feel like they have to reach out. That's how bad it is. Mm. Um, and I think that it's such things like, uh, the homeschooling, the home learning. I think that that's caused a really gendered mental health crisis that not enough of us are talking about, that women have had their careers, not just women, sorry, but predominantly women have had their careers completely interrupted for two years in like Victoria and that's causing a crisis and the pressures they've had at work. Um, teachers that have, you know, dealing with students with depression. Like I think that so I guess my answer is I don't completely know, but my educated response is that I, I think that it's not more people reaching reaching out because they feel like uh, we've done a good job of educating them, although I think we have. I think it's just that more people need to. Um, and, I mean, I do commend this the federal government and other governments for their investment in mental health. It has not happened in other OECD nations. And so I do absolutely commend them for the amount they have invested in mental health support. It hasn't been enough. It clearly hasn't been enough, but it has been better than other countries. Um, and I encourage them to keep going because I think that we're now going to go into at least a one to two year recovery period of mental health. Mm. Nick, what are your thoughts around that? Look, yeah, uh, everything that Joe has said, um, I agree with. Um, I think there, there are some real long-term issues here. And I think, uh, you know, one of the main reasons why we've seen the demand increase is because the need has increased um, so so dramatically. I would just say that I think, you know, there has been a shift um, over the last two years. And I think some of it is uh, perhaps a little bit cynical, um, but nevertheless, probably a good thing. And that is that it is more acceptable to talk about um, the struggles we're having with our mental health 
um, it's more acceptable to talk about our feelings of loneliness or, or our anxieties. Um, and that has come from a, a shift in, in the national dialogue because suddenly people that maybe had never felt it before or, or didn't know what they were feeling before could could point to a reason. There was a reason. COVID gave us a, a reason to talk about our mental health um, that was slightly different from anything we had before. And so suddenly we did see more conversations, more happening in the mainstream media, more happening in, in politics. Um, and certainly our, you know, uh, the government is stepping up um, to, to invest more heavily in mental health supports to have greater conversations around it. I think we still have a long way to go to break down some of the stigma um, around people seeking help um, for, for mental health. And I think most importantly, as, as Joe said, is that people need to feel like there is somewhere they can go and they need to understand that they have choice over who to reach out to um, and the way they reach out uh, for support. And the more that those services are visible, uh, accessible um, and are inclusive, um, then we are going to see more demand. And that's not because it's an artificial creation of demand. It's because the need is already there. We just need to reach the people who need it. So following on with that theme, Nick, if you were to think about next year, 2022, what would be your hopes, dreams, aspirations, if you like, for Relationships Australia? Oh, wow. Okay, where do we begin? <laughs> um, look, there, there's so, there are so many things still needing to be worked on. I think, you know, we we haven't really seen what's happened in response to the Productivity Commission's um, inquiry into mental health. You know, there are still so many pieces out there of the puzzle that need to be tied together and, and we need to see some real tangible action. Um, I think from Relationships Australia's perspective, maybe, you know, there, there's ongoing work in terms of identifying the impact of relationships on our mental health, um, both in terms of when relationships break down um, but also the protective nature of relationships. And perhaps just on a, a slightly different but maybe um, positive note for us, next year sees the 20th anniversary of our National Neighbour Day campaign, um, which is a campaign about reaching out and, and connecting with your local community in a whole manner of different ways. But we, we know and, and we really see that that is a campaign at its heart about creating sustainable connection and building our support networks. And so coming back to what I said earlier about, you know, really high level preventative measures, um, good social connection um, is one of them. And we'll be, we'll be spending a lot of time promoting um, how and why we should all be getting connected socially through, through Neighbour Day 2022. That sounds really exciting, Nick. And Joe, mm. when we think about Switchboard, what have you got planned for 2022? Look, we've got our delayed 30-year celebration because um, we couldn't really have our, you know, we couldn't have our 30-year celebration this year. So we're looking forward to that as a real positive and bringing back our life members who, you know, our two founders are still engaged with our service who are now in their 70s. So look forward to sort of celebrating some of that in person at the new Victorian Pride Centre, which we also haven't been able to get into. Um, so looking forward to all that. I mean, I think for me... 2022 you know I, I, unfortunately there's some um you know things on the horizon that you know do drive poor mental health for lgbti communities i mean the religious discrimination bill is a disgrace and it needs to get in the bin um and unfortunately the federal election will probably beef that up um that debate we need to see the divisiveness um in that kind of avenue um and the political football around trans you know, young people and transgender people at all ages. I would love to see 
you know, like a, a, I'd love to see sort of bipartisan support and cross states and territories for that sort of um, getting over the political football of trans and gender diverse people. Uh, I think it's, um, we certainly don't need that um, coming out of a pandemic. I think if this federal government is serious about LGBTIQA plus suicide, um, I mean, if they're serious about the zero suicide target that they keep talking about, you know, they have to address LGBTIQA plus suicide and not pretend like they keep, they sort of, they talk about suicide, but they don't talk about the high rates of suicide in our community. And that just speaks to a poor public health response and a focus on politics. So we need to get politics out of the public health response, um, which is very difficult, as we've seen in the last two years. But when it does get out of the, you know, when it, there is that sort of champion of public health policy around suicide, you know, I think that will be a real breakthrough. Um, yeah, so that's 2022 for me, really. A, a, a bit of a party, a bit of a um, bit of a advocacy <laughs> and a bit of uh, business as usual. A lot happening, as we say, getting on the beers in Victoria and, you know, getting on with life. <laughs> In all around the country and all around the world, as 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 we start to you know live with what we've been living through, I suppose in the last in the last eighteen months. As we thank you to both of you, as we come to kind of the end of this conversation, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Anything that you know you didn't get to talk about today that you would like to? Look, uh, I think for my part, it's been a great conversation, and we've. Um, yeah, covered so much. It's just great to see uh, more discussion around this, raising awareness um, of the needs of, of everyone to, to be aware of and, and conscious of their, their own mental health and that of those around them. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Nick. Thanks so much for being here today. Joe. final thoughts? Yeah, I think it's um, – I think there's uh, what we've, you know, I think there's some real, like COVID has been, you know, an an undeniable disruptor. Um, And I think there has been some terrible things and there continues to be some terrible things, but there has also been some real breakthrough moments. And I think we need to try and hold on to them where we can. Um, The the gains that we have made, um, like I sort of talked about, you know, the the free childcare that was temporarily um, available um, in Victoria, um, you know, I think the job keeper increase, like I think some of those things, um, the, the housing of homelessness, homeless people I don't, in, in Victoria, in hotels, I say bring that stuff on. We've shown that, you know, there are examples of where we can do things differently um, and let's not, I, I don't want to go back to COVID, I don't want to go back to a world before COVID because I, I, I want there to be a new world, not just a COVID normal, but a, a new world where we centre, you know, people and um, you know, mental health responses and public health responses. And that would be my dream post-COVID. Thanks, Joe. That sounds like a, a good world, a good world to live in. Karenza, any final thoughts to wrap us up today? Oh, I just think it's been a great conversation, Robin. And I think, you know, we've certainly learned a lot from COVID. And I think what's what's really powerful from this conversation really is how both Nick and Joe and their respective organisations really pivoted and changed how they delivered services to ensure that nobody fell through those gaps and cracks. And I think that's a huge testament to their leadership and also the people in their organisations that they were not only able to do that, but also cope with the sheer increase in demand for their services, which is been unprecedented so um, you know it's a really strong takeaway for me it's you know two great organizations doing great things but what powerful leadership that is too so I just think that's awesome 
thank you to all of you for joining us today. Um, there's been a power of work happening in the mental health sector throughout all of the pandemic and, and there will continue to be. So thank you for taking some time to talk to us today. And for our listeners, if you've been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. QLife can be contacted on 1800 184 527 and Relationships Australia on 1300 364 277. And you can find out more about the services of Switchboard Victoria and Relationships Australia in the show notes to this episode. I'm Robin Hayden and you've been listening to Get Real, talking mental health and disability. Join us next time on Get Real for more conversations about mental health and disability. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love you to share Get Real with your friends and networks and subscribe to the show. That way you won't miss an episode. You can also rate and review Get Real on your preferred podcast listening platform. We're listed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Stitcher and Pocket Casts. Until next time, stay safe, stay well and look after yourself. I'll see you soon.